when the Buddha was asked why some people are wise and live their lives in harmony without much uh, suffering, he said that those who are wise, those who understand really how to live their life uh, in harmony with the way things are, have asked a lot of questions. It's not so much that they've asked questions of others, so much as they've asked questions of themselves. Primarily, what we're doing here is asking ourselves, what is, what is this experience? What is, what is going on in this life right now? And it is through this kind of investigation that we come to understand the way things have come to be. And if we understand the way things have come to be, then we have a choice of whether to live in alignment with them or not. And of course the wise person is going to choose to live in alignment with the way things are. If we don't know the way things are, basic mindfulness, how can we even begin to live in alignment, live in harmony with the way things are? We don't even recognize the way things are. So tonight I want to speak about wisdom, investigation, and what it is that we can anticipate on this journey of self-discovery. T.S. Eliot in his Four Quartets articulated the journey that we're on quite succinctly and, and really beautifully when he says, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I'm sure already in the days of this retreat, just by paying attention to how it is in this body, how it is in this mind, we come to a different understanding of ourselves on day four than when we arrived. And it's only by paying attention to this present moment do we correct our uh, mistaken views, our assumptions, our beliefs, our hopes, kind of weed these things out and take a good look at the way things really are, that we can come to uh, know ourselves again, but for the first time. So I want to speak about this um, journey because it is kind of uh, I was going to say surprising, but maybe it's more kind of counterintuitive that we can keep looking at this mind-body process that we've been living with our whole life and discover something new. 
but we can see that it's so. Carl Sagan said, Avoidable human misery is often caused by stupidity, is, is, is more often caused not so much by stupidity as by ignorance, particularly ignorance about ourselves. Avoidable human misery caused by ignorance about ourselves. So what is it that we're not aware of, that we're ignorant of? And what is it that this process or this practice of mindful awareness reveals to us? You'll remember that the function of mindfulness is to remember. And what is it we are to remember is a present moment's experience. Remember to recognize this present moment's experience. And while that sounds, and we know it is really quite simple, it's not easy to do with any uh, consistency. (coughs) So the first insight that we get from trying to pay attention and recognize the present moment is that we're not present much of the time. Did anybody not have that insight yet? (laughs) We didn't arrive at that understanding by thinking about it. We arrived at it by direct observation of what is going on. Right? So immediately we get get this feedback that this process of self-discovery is not about thinking about your experience. It's about recognizing your experience and arriving at these insights, these intuitive insights, these, these obvious facts that are just waiting for us to acknowledge because we've been paying careful enough attention. But it takes some courage to do that. We all know that we have places in our life, places in our, our bodies, our minds, our emotions that we just you know, have learned to avoid. We just don't go there. You know, it's too painful. It's too confusing. It's too shameful. It's too hard. And so for whatever reason, we don't look. We don't go there. We, we avoid. We've got our internal and external defenses and reasons and rationales and beliefs and assumptions about ourselves that just keeps us insulated in the familiar. So what we do with this tool of mindful awareness is we just look. We just look again and again and again at what initially might appear to be ordinary, routine, boring, mundane, repetitive or recurring, same thing. But, as we know, in between the cracks there, we begin to see things differently. We begin to open to more than what we saw before. We begin to understand ourselves differently. And so this this gradual immersion into the continuity of mindful awareness gradually pulls us out of our train of thought. 
we live in this train of thought. We live in this constantly weaving narrative that is just weaving the tapestry of our life into view. And we just comment and narrate our lives to ourselves, fixing a sense of ourselves that includes everything we've ever done or experienced. And mindful observation just kind of slows down that narration, slows down the weaving, and just says, well, what, what, what am I... What are we making this story out of? What, are, what is this tapestry really made of, this tapestry of my life? And we see, you know, but in pretty, pretty quickly, that there's just moments of experience being known. I read about a botanist in the 1800s who traveled across the continental U.S. wasn't the U.S. at the time, but what there was of it traveled across the continent and on his journey or you know after he completed his journey he lamented the fact that he had to ride a horse because he was moving so fast that he couldn't take the time to really see what it is he was passing by well the same thing could be said for us in our life we live our life one moment at a time as a speeding train through our life. And we only get, you know, a single moment to grab the grab the gusto, if you will, or to experience this moment and we're on to the next. And if we only have that view of our life, just the the kind of the unspooling of moment to moment as it goes by we our understanding of ourselves is more like a silhouette than a three-dimensional aliveness and so a large part of mindfulness is to slow down to spend time with to really become intimate with all that is going into this process of becoming who we are georgia o'keefe says Nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. To become intimate with ourselves takes time. To spend the time is to spend time with each moment's experience in order to come out from behind the screen of assumptions and beliefs that we have about ourselves, and to see things in the light of awareness. And we can be sure that what we see when we come out from underneath the layers of belief and assumption, confusion, conditioning, we can be sure that what we see is going to be a different movie than what we've observed in the diluted movie hall of our cultural and family conditioning. The tool for doing this, of course, is just mindful awareness, which slows down the movie to become still photos. And then we get a chance to look at each still photo and to realize all the elements, to to take notice of all the elements, all the pixels, if you will, of phenomena that go into making up each moment which when strung together 
creates the movie of our life. Learning how to observe is vitally important. During the 1800s, there was a famous Swiss naturalist named Louis Agassiz. And Louis Agassiz made his renown as a scholar and a teacher by encouraging his students to actually study nature instead of read the books. And so he made his name studying glaciers. You know those fast-moving things up in the mountain? (laughs) So he's studying glaciers, and he's just looking at glaciers, observing them, watching them. And from that, being able to understand their nature in a way that was more far-reaching than anything that had ever been written about glaciers before. So he came to America on a tour, speaking about his, his way of teaching. And actually, you know, wherever he went, he was wildly popular in America. And all kinds of, uh, in many of the places that he spoke, Louis Agassiz clubs were formed to, to practice his way of learning. Of course, Harvard University heard about him and invited him to teach. And he came to teach there, and he was very popular as a graduate advisor. So graduate students wanted to him as their advisor, and it was quite competitive. Everyone had to fill out a form and had to go for a personal interview with him. And Samuel Scudder was one of those students who applied, had the personal interview, and when he was asked by Louis Agassiz when he would like to begin, Samuel said, now, of course, you don't wait, you don't miss any opportunity. So he wrote about his experience like this. He said, Agassiz went to a shelf, picked a pickled fish off of a jar, out of a jar, put it on a plate and put it in front of him and told him to look at the fish. In 10 minutes, Samuel Scudder wrote, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour, the fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in utter despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. (laughs) It seemed a most limited field of study. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later in the day and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. (laughs) Sounds familiar? (laughs) He continues, I was piqued, I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and I discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, (laughs) Scudder 
had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value which he could not buy and with which he could not part. You got it easy. We're not harping on it too much, but we're saying the same thing. Keep looking because... What has to be seen is right in front of us. It is within us, but we don't see it yet. Why? Well, we haven't looked. We haven't looked consistently enough, steady enough, or repeatedly, or in a way that the understanding can come from the observation. This observation, this thorough observation, this willingness to just stay there and look again and again and again, where we move where our perspective moves from a conceptual understanding of, oh, this is a fish, familiar enough, to what's really there. Not the concept of a fish, but what's really there to be observed. So too, when we look at our life, we're looking and we see, well, we know the story of our life, and that's what we see for the most part. The stories, I like this, I don't like this, this person hurt me, I hope this happens, I don't want that to happen, and plans and memories and... That's the story of your life. That's not what's really going on. That's the story that you're telling yourself about what's going on. And so the the challenge for mindful awareness is to get beneath the story. Don't hang out with the story. Get beneath it to the actual experience of what's going on because you'll be surprised what you discover. When we look beneath the surface of things we discover more than we anticipated. Several years ago, well, decades ago now, about the time I started Dharma practice, a friend of mine was cooking on an archaeological dig up in central Maine behind Katahdin, which is the northernmost uh, point of the Appalachian Trail. And she was cooking there, and so I went to visit. And around this little pond out in the middle of this vast northern Maine forest, the the archaeologists had kind of staked out these uh, four-foot-by-four-foot squares around this pond, and there was half a dozen, six or eight holes. And they were excavating the forest floor to see what they could discover. And, you know, when you do an archaeological dig, you you take a little trowel and you scrape off a you know, an eighth of an inch, a quarter of an inch. Document everything that you find at that level. Scrape off another quarter of an inch. Document everything. And so to work your way down through a couple of feet down to bedrock takes some time. But every time they would come to a, a piece of stone or a charred stick or a bone fragment or whatever, they would catalog its location, document it, put it in a plastic bag for taking back to the Uh, to the lab at the university to analyze later. So they were collecting, (coughs) honest, just these little fragments of charred wood, little pieces of bone, and they weren't discovering anything, you know, no big dinosaur (coughs) bones or anything like that, but just little incidental things. So 
they did that. That took a couple of months to, to dig the holes and, and, and collect what they were going to collect. During the winter, when the pond froze over and they could go out on the ice, they went out on the ice, drilled down through the ice, and took a core sample of the muck at the bottom of the pond so that they could get a profile of all the pollen from bedrock as high as they had accumulated so they could see what plants were growing in what years or what centuries since the last glacier left Maine 1,200 years ago. So what they found out, once they collected all this data, which individually, a little piece of bone, a little charred stick, you know, pollen samples from the bottom of the pond, don't seem to be much of a story. But once they had all the data and they kind of massaged it into a story, a narrative, what they discovered was that they had found what were the fire pits of the Clovis people, who were the antecedents to the Native American, uh, the local Native American tribes. And they were following the receding edge of the last glacier to leave Maine 12,000 years ago. And they happened to stop there and make a campfire and kind of set up camp there because there was a quarry of stone there called Chert, which is used to make the arrowheads, spearheads, axe heads, uh, and things like that that the Native Americans used. And they have found this Chert all across the United States because the native tribes knew of it, would go there and harvest this chert stone and trade it with other tribes that needed it or wanted it for things that they needed. And it was like an industrial area. Well, any one of these pieces of information seems insignificant in itself itself. But when you put all this information together, the whole history, the early history of the Native Americans on, in North America started to fall into place. They began to understand the way things had come to be. When we do the same thing, we're just observing these infinitesimally small little experiences of physical stuff, mental stuff, memory stuff, planned stuff, judgments, fears, joys, sorrows, Whatever it is that comes into view, seemingly useless uh, or familiar or boring, uh, insignificant, in and of themselves, not so much. But cumulatively, they reveal a very powerful story of the way things have come to be, how things have come to be for us. Sam Keen writes, To break the spell of our personality, we must recover our personal history. To demythologize the private, family, and public myths that have informed my life, I must be willing to become disillusioned with the images I have of myself. To know myself, I must begin to discriminate between my raw experience and my beliefs about them. What we're doing here in this observation of our experience is to experience the rawness of life. 
just the direct experience of this body, this mind, contact with the environment. Not the stories we tell ourselves about it, but how it actually is, because in there, in that rawness, is another story. The real story of how it is for us. Mindfulness doesn't spin a story. Mindfulness sees things as they are. And when in the course of our personal history review or personal history discovery, we come upon memories from the past, sometimes the memories look or feel very differently than we remembered them. Why? Because mindfulness sees them as they really were. The mind, as you probably now probably have all discovered, is a perfect camcorder. The mind records everything that's ever been seen, heard, smelt, tasted, touched, thought, imagined, wished for, hoped for, feared. And yet, we also know that much of what we experience, or that the mind registers, we don't know when it happens. We don't recognize it when it happens. And yet, mindfulness, when it becomes powerful and looks at what's going on here, will discover the past as it really was. And what we discover there is our conditioning. How it is we became the way we are, our personality, really. Carl Sagan again. Considered by a good friend of ours, Raul Saldana, as the patron saint of curiosity and interest. He is, you'll see. To know the past, you have to know the past in order to understand the present, he says. So mindfulness doesn't spin the story. It actually sees things straight, meaning without a story. And what is it that we see in our conditioning? We see the conditioning of our parents, their beliefs, their assumptions, their fears, their ambitions. We see the same of our culture, our education, our economic class, our religious training. And we see that we have been imprinted with beliefs, assumptions, hopes, fears, biases from others. Not because we observed it ourselves, not because we had a justified reason for it, but we've been given it. We've been trained to think this way, to believe this way. And yet, so much of that is laid down in the, in the mind before we can make a choice for ourselves that now, in its operation, we don't even see it. We don't see the assumptions we're living with. We don't see the fears, the cultural fears, the personal fears, the family fears, the shame, the humiliations that have, well, conditioned us to be who we are, how we are, how we know ourselves to be. And when we, when we undertake this journey of self-discovery and expose this level of conditioning, it's, it can be very unsettling. It can be really disturbing. It can be frightening. It can be uh, not very pleasant. Nevertheless, we have to do it. Because 
Otherwise, we live as an automaton. We live out the cultural conditioning of our family, of our culture. And we don't, we don't have to make it seem to be too remote or... Just think of the Middle East. We have this extraordinary conflict in the Middle East. It's been going on for centuries. Generation after generation after generation after generation just picking up where their parents or grandparents or great-great-great-great-great-grandparents left off and continuing with the same animosities, revenge, retribution. And you can see that the conditioning there is really hard for any one person, let alone a culture, to get out from under. And then we have, and and not so well known actually, then we have those who live on the Orkney Islands in northern Scotland. I don't know if you know about the northern, the Orkney, Orkney Islands, but it's way up north, northern Scotland. It is perfect weather, beautiful farming, abundant fish in the ocean. It's just a magical place. Everybody lives in harmony and nobody ever leaves. <laughs> Why? That's, that's their conditioning. That's their, that's their culture. That's their conditioning. That's what they've grown up to know and expect and that's how they live. Those people, they don't have the conflicts that those in the Middle East have. Not because there's something inherently different in the individual but that their cultural, family, religious, economic conditioning was different. So we look at ours, our lives, our situations. We find out where we are feeling more like we live in the Middle East. What we feel like we feel at times feel like we live in the Orkney Islands. You know, what is it that causes and brings you happiness and joy, sorrow, fear, frustration, disappointment, humiliation and shame? How are we going to find out? You're not going to ask your parents. You're not going to ask your partner. Well, they know, but (laughs) maybe more than you do. We have to look. We have to look, don't we? Nobody can tell you. Nobody can tell you what your conditioning is. We have to see for ourselves. We have never been without our cultural conditioning, our family conditioning, our religious conditioning. Even as a baby, it starts in the womb, our conditioning. Whatever your mom eats, whatever the sounds are in the house around at that time, whatever the emotional energy is, you got it. You didn't have a choice. It's imprinted in there. And as we explore these opaque layers of conditioning, we need to be very patient and very loving. Because we discover that we're not who we thought we were. Don Juan, another great Dharma teacher of the last centuries, in speaking to Carlos Castaneda, said, You see, Don Juan says, We only have two alternatives. We either take everything for granted or we don't. (laughs) If we follow the first... We end up bored to death with ourselves and with the world, everyone else. If we follow the second and erase personal history, we create a mist around us 
a very exciting and mysterious state in which nobody knows the limits of what's possible. You can either be bored to death with yourself, (laughs) or you can discover what you don't yet know. But let's face it, our conditioning feels so solid, it feels so real, it feels so ubiquitous, it's hard to imagine getting out from under it. It feels like the bedrock of our life. But when those archaeologists were digging in the soil, the forest soil of Maine, and they got down through the the layers of forest debris, down into the gravel, whatever it is, and they got down to bedrock, that was only the first layer of exploration. And so too for us. When we get down through, work down into our personal history, we've just reached our bedrock. Bedrock conditioning. And this bedrock conditioning for, or the bedrock for the archaeologists, was the geology of the tectonic plates on which this whole forest was growing. Now, you know those tectonic plates. They look to be pretty, or the earth, the surface of the earth looks to be pretty solid, pretty stable, uh, not going anywhere. And yet we know that they move around and give rise to, well, the Himalayan mountains. The coast of Massachusetts is somewhere off the uh, southern tip of Africa. If you look geologically at the foundation of it. And so we can see that even though these, the appearance of the solidity of the earth upon which we live feels to be solid, it moves So too, our conditioning seems to be solid, but it too moves. You know those geological plates moving across the surface of the earth? They move at the rate a fingernail grows. Forever. That's a lot of movement. So what is it that we discover down below the cultural conditioning, family conditioning, religious conditioning, the conditioning that we've learned there's another layer, layer of conditioning that is inherent, that is intrinsic to our, to our life. And here we have the conditioning of our ethnic heritage, our age, our species, and our sex and gender. We never have been without them. They're intrinsic, they're inherent. We didn't learn it, they come with the package. And yet, they exert a powerfully conditioning effect on how we experience the world in our life. And if we see it, we can choose how to respond. If we see that layer of conditioning. Now I myself, my conditioning is kind of an Anglo-white, senior now, human, not otherwise, Cis male heterosexual. Some would say that's a pretty privileged place to be. Well, that's the conditioning that I got to live with. And those of you who have other 
baseline characteristics, that, that unlearned conditioning, being otherwise, well, you have to learn to live with that one too. Or live with the conditioning of that, which you didn't learn, you didn't have a choice about, but if you don't see it, you have no choice. If you do see it, you have a choice. It's not that I can choose not to be human, but I can recognize the limitations or the conflict that comes with, with those who are not human. And there's a tremendous, as when the tectonic plates of the earth move about and they bump into each other, when ethnic groups move about on the face of the earth and they bump into each other, we know there's conflict. When the, when the youth of the world meet the elders of the world, there's perennial cultural and generational conflict. It's unavoidable. And yet, if we don't see our conditioning, we'll be victimized by it. So, some of what we see in this process of discovery is our own conditioning. That, you know, we've lived with it our whole life. How are we going to see through it? How are we going to learn to see without being identified with it? You can only pay really close attention. And then you see that it's a choice you have. You have options, if you will. So this awareness reveals the gap between this baseline conditioning, this bedrock conditioning, and how we choose to live in the world with others. So now I want to talk about Hawaii. Because while the bedrock seem, and these tectonic plates seem to be moving around, they're constantly being recreated. Now in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, there's the Hawaiian Islands. And there's a crack in the Earth's mantle down below the ocean where there's a hot spot and magma or the lava, if you will, from the center of the earth comes up through the crack in the earth and forms the Hawaiian Islands. But the tectonic plates of the Pacific crust has been moving northwest for millennia. And so you have a line of islands stretching from the northwest, which are the oldest islands, to the southeast, which is the newest island. And by the way, new land is being made in Hawaii, uh, just underwater, just off the coast of the Big Island. So if you're interested in land in Hawaii, uh, it's a little warm right now, but it'll be available in a few millennia. (laughs) Nevertheless, what appears to be solid earth tectonic plate was once molten lava, magma. Just rocks and crystals and bubbles and gases that kind of came bursting out of the center of the earth onto the earth's surface and created this appearance of solidity. So the apparent solidity of our personal crust, if you will, or bedrock conditioning, was once molten. It hasn't always been this fixed, but it appears to be now in time. So what we're looking at here is the 
And what we discover in our practice is we find what are called baseline mental legacy. Okay, anybody know what that is? Okay, it is the baseline mental legacy. It's like the default mode network of our mind. The kind of uh, default setting, if you will, of different mental capacities. And each one of us has our own matrix. For example, the paramis are the ten wholesome states of mind uh, or mental factors like generosity, truthfulness, loving-kindness, equanimity, resolve, energy, truthfulness. We each have a baseline quantity of that, of each one of those. Some of us are more generous by nature. Some of us are more loving by nature. Some of us are very equanimous by nature, more so than others. And so we each have a kind of soundboard of the mind, if you will, where different quantities of these wholesome mental states are the baseline from which we act. But just as there are wholesome qualities of mind, there are unwholesome qualities of mind. Attachment, aversion, delusion, confusion, wrong view, jealousy, pride. They too have a baseline index, if you will, where we are more or less susceptible to greed, delusion, aversion, Interestingly, this baseline personality in the Buddhist typology, really, is if if we're aware in practicing wholesomeness, what appears in the unwholesome state as desire, which is seeking pleasure, becomes faith seeking the good when we practice wholesomeness. So there's the same quality of seeking after. If it's unwholesome, it seeks for pleasure. If it's wholesome, it seeks for the good. Or the the development of our mind, as we've been talking about, the cultivation and development of the mind. Aversion, of course we know, is an unwholesome, um, discriminating, uh, kind of finding fault with, uh, kind of picking apart someone's behavior and just being... You know, when you get angry with someone, everything you see about them is wrong. It's bad. It's just... That kind of discrimination, when it's cultivated through wholesome practice, becomes discernment. Wise discernment. They say that those who have an aversive kind of tendency get enlightened quicker because their aversion turns into wisdom. I know, those of you who have a lot of desire don't believe that, but we aversive types, we know. <laughs> okay, never mind. Anyway, what I, what I want to point to is that this bedrock that we think of our personality is, is, is still being formed. While it may have an apparent, an apparent solidity, you know, our personality, through our practice or through our neglect of practice, we add to, augment, decrease the wholesome and unwholesome baseline of our mind. 
A lifetime of Dharma practice has a significant effect on our baseline mentality. So it's not like we just come and do a weekend retreat and kind of you know, change our life. Yeah, it can be pretty profound. But to work at the development or cultivation of the wholesome, which in every case depletes or decreases the unwholesome, has a profound effect. So did you ever wonder, did you ever wonder why other people you know, maybe siblings, don't get it, don't get the Dharma? Now I have a brother and two sisters, and when I first started practicing the Dharma, I shared my enthusiasm, my interest, and, you know, a couple of books with them. Never touched them. Not interested. Never followed up. Never, no, no interest whatsoever. And yet for me, when I heard the Dharma for the first time, it was like something I'd always known, something that just resonated as being so obviously true that there was no option but to pick it up and work with it in my life. Why? Why the difference? Well, baseline mentality. We come into the world, any, anyone who's seen or, or, or carried and, and, and delivered, uh, babies know that you don't have to wait long before they show their personality. You know, well, about you know, 15 minutes. You know, and, the, and, and their personality comes out. You know, and why? Where does it come from? So this, even though the momentum of the tectonic plate movement of the Earth's surface of the Earth is not very fast, over time it can have a tremendous effect. So too with our practice of the Dharma. While moment by moment, or even retreat by retreat, or even year after year, it might be hard to monitor, it might be hard to measure the change. Nevertheless, given enough time, it becomes apparent. Dramatically so. These mental factors, these baseline mental qualities that we have in our heart, where did they come from? Where did the lava or the magma from the center of the earth come from? Carl Sagan again says, the cosmos is within us. We are all made of star stuff. Everything that we see, everything in us, everything in this world, everything about this world, everything in the universe is just stardust. But what we see is this infinite potential of stardust to create all that we know. So too in our hearts and minds. We're all made of the same stuff. We're all made of the same potential. These mental states, these actions, wholesome and unwholesome, this karma of wisdom or delusion, desire or faith, aversion or wisdom, we're all made of the same stuff. We all have the same opportunity. In some ways we could say we're all dharma dust. 
our personalities, our minds, it's all made of Dharma dust. And it's through just the infinite variety of causes and conditions coming together, falling apart, coming together, falling apart, that we, that we see apparent differences. But even within ourselves in a single lifetime, you know, we're born, we go through all that painful childhood, then we go through that painful adulthood trying to understand our painful childhood. <laughs> then we die. No. <laughs> I mean, we do eventually, but, you know, in the process, just imagine, just remember all that you've wanted and searched for and strived for and gotten and abandoned and the other things that you've wanted and worked hard for, sometimes years for an education or a job or financial security or raising a family. It's just endless. I mean, you know, and we're still doing it. We're still looking ahead, looking ahead to what more What more do we need? What more can we do? What more must be done? What more desires do we have? Right? In order to grow, we have to let go. Right? How can we grow if we don't let go of what we're hanging on to? We need that energy. We need that resources. We need the time. We need the the energy. We need the mind that's tied up in the past, fears, blame, shame, humiliation, we need that energy to grow in the future, to grow now into the future. And so what we discover in our, in our investigation of here now is places where we're holding our energy, where our energy is tied up, where it's not available for life in the present moment. And to release that energy is not easy. It's not, it's, it can be painful. You know, imagine that you squeezed your fist together when you were three, holding on to mom, or holding on to whatever it is you, your favorite toy then, and you haven't let go yet. And now you see that you're holding on to something that is of no use to you. But you've got to open your fist to let go. Can you imagine how, how painful that's going to be? To open that fist. That's what we're doing. We're opening our hearts. We're opening our mind to let go of what we've been holding on to that doesn't bring us satisfaction, doesn't allow us to grow. It's just a holding on out of fear, out of attachment, out of desire, out of shame, out of pain, whatever it is, we're holding on. And when we come to recognize that and try to let go, we have to be willing to endure the pain of opening. But this is the opening. This is the the pain. That kind of pain is the pain that leads to the end of suffering. The grasping is the pain that leads to more suffering. And when we learn to let go, each, each, each moment of letting go, while it's painful... It, leads, it releases the energy of holding to make it available for living in the present moment. This is our journey. The Buddha said, this entire universe 
is to be found within this fathom-long body. We don't have to go anywhere. We just have to look right here. And we'll discover all there is to know about this universe. Shapkar is a Tibetan wandering monk ascetic from some time ago. I don't remember just when. A great poet. And he said something that I want to share that is really thoughtful. He says, no matter how much happiness and sorrow you have experienced, Isn't it amazing that this mind is not impaired nor improved in the slightest? Think about it. You know how much pain you've you've suffered this lifetime? Tremendous. Sadness, loneliness, fear, humiliation, shame. It's just... it's, It's a lot. And yet, has your mind been damaged? Not a bit. It's still right here, ready for the next moment. Ready to notice, be with, enjoy the next moment. Now think of all the happiness you've experienced. All all the joy, all the pleasure, all the excitement, all the fulfillment, all the gratitude. All that. Has it improved the mind? Does it make the mind somehow better, able to be present with this moment? No, not that either. Why do we fear pain? Why are we still seeking pleasure? You have to ask yourself, really. We've experienced all the pain that we need, right? And yet we're still afraid of it. We contort ourselves and we hide from ourselves and we, we get into difficulties with each other because of anticipated pain. We've already experienced that. What is it that we have yet to learn? What is it that we have to learn yet? We've lived our life, we know the story of our life, but we haven't seen it yet. This dancing energy within us, within the universe, this immensity that we discover as we explore our heart, has infinite potential. There's just no end to what the mind can discover, what the heart can discover. No end. Carl Sagan again says, in all our searching, the only thing we've found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. Trungpa Rinpoche encourages us with his poem, Afterthought. And he says, such a precious human body. Difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain. Not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. 
You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified. Sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.